You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. And uh, good morning, everybody. So glad to see you all. My name is Joey. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in a study through the book of Daniel. Uh, This is a classic story, right? If you grew up in church, you know this story. It's... uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Everyone knows the story, but there is one item that is essential to this story that pops up over and over again throughout the whole entire thing. It's the glue to the story. It it ties the whole story together, and it's this. Are you ready? It shows up 10 times, 10 different times is mentioned. It's the burning, fiery furnace. The whole point of the story is actually the furnace. See, each character that we, what just met, has some sort of interaction with the furnace. And it's each one's interaction with the furnace that reveals who they really are. Each person's character's interaction with the furnace reveals who that person really is. Who are they, what are they made of? Who are they truly? And look, so this shouldn't be surprising. Okay, so when we, in our current modern uh, culture, we hear about fire and furnaces, we think heat, we think getting burned. But in the pre-industrial time, in ancient times, okay, listen, when they heard of or thought of a fiery furnace, they didn't just think of something that produces heat. They didn't think of just something that produces, that, that might burn you. They thought of something primarily that refined, that, that, that um, verified, that, that proved something's real value, real material content, that purified that source, that thing. That's what the original readers the, the hearers of the story would immediately think of when they thought of a fiery furnace. Just to kind of show you this point, if you were to go to First uh, Peter 1, it says this. I'll just read it to you. Look what Peter says. He says, in this you rejoice, your trials, you know, your suffering. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the, listen here, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you see, this idea of a furnace, this idea of a fire, the primary idea behind it is, is it reveals what's really there, the value, the pricelessness of the thing. It purifies the thing. So the original readers would have understood the furnace to mean much more than heat, much more than something that might burn you, but rather something that tests and reveals And each one of these characters in this story interacts with the furnace and reveals who they really are. Now, in order, in order to discern, in order to discern what the furnace reveals in each character, we're not on our own to figure it out. Like, it's not like we just sit back and um, have a conversation and try to come up with our own ideas of what the furnace is revealing in each character. Because if you noticed, as Don read the story, there is a ton of repetition throughout the story. Same phrases, same words pop up over and over, and all of that repetition is there so that we connect the dots, so that we, sh- so that we see very easily and very naturally what the furnace is revealing in each one of these characters. So as we go through the story, what I want to do is highlight keywords and phrases that Daniel uses so we can easily, naturally see what the furnace is revealing. So here's what we're going to see. Here's what the furnace reveals, our two points for today. Apart from God's kingdom, we establish our own. But within God's kingdom, we are not our own. Apart, we establish our own. Within, we are not our own. 
Before we go ahead and explore those two things, let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, we ask now that you would teach us, that you would open up our minds and our hearts to examine ourselves and have the wisdom and clarity of mind to see our own lives and to see where you are testing us and where you are refining us. It is your will, Father, that you put us through pressure, through a furnace, through testing, suffering, trials, difficulties, in order that we might become refined, so that our faith might be more precious, more uh, strong, more fortified, and so that you, God, might become all the more dear, all the more precious, all the more wonderful and real to us. So God, I pray that you would use this story to cause us to get on board with what you're doing in our lives. Each one of us here, every single one of us here, are either in the middle of something hard or about to be in the, in the middle of something hard. So Father, I pray that you would uh, grab our minds and our hearts and persuade us today to embrace your will for us in our, time, in our times of suffering. And that we would be, that we would be confident, Lord, that we are not our own, that you are concerned for us, that you love us, and who we believe you are, who we think you are, is who you really are. I pray that you would do that today, Lord. I pray that you be with me as I preach, and that we would all leave here um, faithful to you as exiles. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so apart from God's kingdom, we establish our own. This is what the furnace reveals. And firstly, we begin with King Nebuchadnezzar. What does the furnace reveal about this man? So you remember, just a review here, this is really important, in chapter 3, last week we saw that Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this majestic, large statue. Its head is gold, uh, its chest is silver, its torso is bronze, its legs are iron, and it represents Babylon, him and Babylon, at least at the top, and then the successive nations that come after him. So he sees this massive statue in his dream, but he is told in the dream that another kingdom, another kingdom will arise after him, meaning his empire will not last forever. His legacy will be gone. Further, Daniel tells him, listen here, that he, that this, that this stone is going to come along and destroy this image, and it will grow into a mountain that fills the earth, and that means that God's going to set up his kingdom, and that kingdom will stand forever. So opposite to Nebuchadnezzar, God's established kingdom will never end. Now the interesting thing here, what we have to take note of, is that same word for a kingdom will rise, and the word here used to say that God's kingdom will be set up and stand, they're all the same words in the original language. So when you come to chapter 3, okay, we come to chapter 3, our story, you see this word stand or rise, the exact same word, also 10 different times. Let me give you two examples of where we see this word stand up here, this main word in the story. It says in verses 1 and 2, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Later on, verse 7, 
Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, every kind of music, all, nation, all people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And that phrase appears time and time again as different characters allude back to this original plan for King Nebuchadnezzar to set up this image. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves. What's the point of this repetition? What's the point of this phrase popping up over and over? And here's what it is. Nebuchadnezzar is refusing to agree with the dream and the interpretation that he has just had. His kingdom, he is saying in this by, by erecting this statue, standing it up for all people to come serve, worship, and bow down to, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, my kingdom will not end. It will last. This image represents him and his kingdom. Remember the top did, the, the head did. But instead of a, uh, an image that is gold only at the top, here it's an image of gold from top to bottom. So he's saying, no, my legacy is not going to end. My empire will not end. It will last forever. And this point that he is digging his heels in the sand is intensified. It's escalated by what we, we see in these verses. These long, exaggerated, detailed lists of all these people and all these instruments used in this summoning to come and bow down to this image that he has established. It seems as if Nebuchadnezzar is pulling out all the stops, making every single effort to make sure that his kingdom will never end. He, he, he summons all the people in power, all the people who have influence in this time, all his royal cabinet, any leaders in society, he summons them, he summons all people's language and, na and nations, and then does what? He, he makes the greatest production you can imagine with all these instruments to woo people into bowing down to his kingdom. Now, what does this have to do with the furnace? Because that's, that's what we're saying here is this, the glue to the story is the furnace. And so there's no furnace here yet. So wh where's the furnace appearing? It's not explicitly stated. It's not here in words. But if you're in the original audience, if you understand that this is the before the industrial times, you know this, that the only way that Nebuchadnezzar could erect this statue that is laden with gold is if he used a furnace to smelt the gold in order to, to make the statue. What the furnace reveals is that when our empire is threatened, we become obsessed with regaining control, and we will exercise all our creativity, all our ingenuity to preserve our kingdom, and it will turn us obsessive. And when that doesn't work, when we can't get control, when it's not working, it will turn us furious, it will turn us reckless. That's what we see happen in the story. When, when, when these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down to the statue later on. It says in verse 13 that Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, threatens them. And then in verse 19, it says this. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. The expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Now, Something interesting is happening here in verse 19. It says the, 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 his face, the expression of his face changed. That same word for face is the same exact word used for image. And that's intentional. That's completely purposeful. But what's the point? And again, the original readers, those who are reading the story in the original time, know this. 
that those who make idols become like them, and so do all who trust in them. That's Psalm 115. They know something that we have a hard time learning, which is what you put your hope in, what you put your trust in, will have an effect on you. It will change you. It will transform you. It will cause you to crumble. It will distort you. And that's the purpose of all these, of all these words connecting to each other, of, all, of, of this uh, recycling of this image but the same word used of, of Nebuchadnezzar's face. He has become, because he is so obsessed with maintaining and preserving, establishing his kingdom, he has become obsessive. He has become fragile. He has become rageful. He has become reckless. Here is a man who cannot imagine life without power who cannot imagine life without empire. Here's a man who does not know who he is apart from his kingdom. And in his effort to establish his kingdom and maintain his identity, he burdens himself and he burdens others. In an effort to maintain his identity, he causes only pain for himself and pain for everybody else. This is what the the furnace reveals. That when the pressure is applied, if you're not within the kingdom of God, you will seek to establish your own. And you will do whatever it takes, at whatever cost it comes, to maintain that kingdom, that identity that you can't live without. That's what we see in Nebuchadnezzar through the furnace. When the pressure is applied, this is who he really is. But we also see this in another group of men, the Chaldeans. What do they do in verse 8? We know the story in verse 8, that, that they understand, they know that these other three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not bowing. And so what do they do? They take advantage of this opportunity. They see their window of opportunity to take out their competition. These men, listen, this is so funny. These men, they don't care in the least about Nebuchadnezzar. They don't care in the least about this decree. Their heart's not in it at all, but this is an opportunity they have. To le- this, this is a window of opportunity they have to leverage in order to establish their own empire, or take back what is theirs, to take back control, to take back their identity, to take back what they have lost. This shows us a different aspect of what this obsession, this need to establish our own kingdom results in. What does it result in? When an opportunity to establish our own kingdom is presented, it does not matter how religious you are, It does not matter how professional you are. It does not matter how polite you are. None of those things will be relevant. None of those things will be taken into account when the pressure is really applied. When that moment comes for you to reestablish your kingdom, to take back what is you think yours, those things will no longer have influence over you. When it's actually of consequence, when the pressure is applied and actually matters what happens for your kingdom, like these men, you will take a shortcut. Like these men, you will be ruthless. Like these men, you will turn cruel. See, it's very possible to appear kind. It's very possible to appear to be a team player. It's very possible to appear to have some sort of humility or system of morality that keeps you in check when it's convenient. When it's no longer convenient, when it's actually consequential, 
it ceases to be relevant. That is what is going to ask, that's what life is going to be like when we are not within God's kingdom, when we are seeking to establish our own. Now listen, you're here maybe, and maybe you're not religious at all. Or maybe you're just kind of sort of religious, you know, it's whatever, it's a part of your life, but it's not centered to your life. And let me just tell you this, if that's you here today. This kind of ruthlessness, this playbook for life to establish our own kingdom, if you don't believe in God, if you, don't, if you sort of believe in God, but he's not a center to your life, then this, this, you shouldn't have a problem with this. You shouldn't have a problem with this at all. Without God, without a God who is your creator and authority and reference point for morality, then this makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? See, these men, they believe in gods. They had many gods. But even these gods, their gods were inferior to what the Babylonians called the fates. So it, was just, it wasn't a huge deal for them. It wasn't the center to their lives. Without that ultimate reference point, here's what this means. You're off the hook. You can do what you want. You can crush others. You can manipulate others. You can use others. You can take that window of opportunity to take back what you think is yours. You're off the hook. But let me just tell you this. Let me just tell you this. You can't expect decency from anybody else. It doesn't make any sense. It's not consistent to expect anybody else to have a level of decency if you don't feel like you need to have one. What you should expect, then, is a cutthroat life where taking shortcuts, making people expendable, expendable for personal aim is totally acceptable. That just makes sense apart from God. We're not within his kingdom. It just makes sense to be ruthless. Why not, right? But let me remind you how hollow of a life that is, right? Because you can imagine, or maybe you know somebody who at the end of their life, after a life of just succeeding at whatever costs, of triumphing at whatever costs, whatever it took, whatever, whatever was necessary, they might have influence, they might have security, they might have, mon- they might have it all, but you know what they don't have? They don't have relationships, because everybody in their life has been, has experienced the collateral of their obsession to establish their own kingdom. What they have is all this influence, all this success, all this, whatever you want to call it, but they have a life actually underneath it all of regrets. And that is what's in store for us when we seek to establish our own kingdom. Now, that's what I want to say to you here if, you know, you're just, you don't believe in God or he's just not really part of your life. You're off the hook, but so is everybody else. But we know deep down in our hearts that that's not right, that that can't be true. That's not the true story. But that's not the majority of us. The majority of us in here, the majority of us in here believe in God. We have a system of morality. He is our ultimate reference point for what is right and wrong, what is obligatory. But yet, this point still resonates with us, doesn't it? There are times where we are cutthroat and ruthless. There are times where we do take shortcuts. There are times where people are expendable. Or these things still happen in our life. This still resonates with us. And why is that? And here's let me tell you why this is the case. Because often we treat God more like a secretary than we do like the ultimate authority of our life. See, a secretary, they can remind you of things. They can make great recommendations. They can, you know, they can give you some great advice, a great schedule, a great framework for life, but they can't tell you what to do ultimately. They have no real authority over, their, over your life. They are a consult, but they don't get the final word. You do. 
Often we treat God just like that, like he's a secretary. Great recommendations. Therefore, someone will need him, but ultimately we get the final say. Ultimately, when the pressure is applied and it's a matter of real consequence where you're going to lose out what you think gives you worth, gives you happiness, gives you security, you get the final word. See, this point still resonates with us even though we are confessors of Christ. This is still what we do. So when we're not living within God's kingdom, we seek to establish our own. It causes all sorts of pain, all sorts of inconsistency, There's one more example, though. One more example I want to point to that shows us what the furnace reveals. When the pressure is applied and we're outside of God's kingdom, what happens? And it's everybody who bows down. It's those leaders. It's the satraps. It's the peoples, every tongue, tribe, nation, people that he mentioned here at the beginning of the story. If you go back to verse 7, it says this. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, languages fell down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So we see here something interesting. Rather than this aggressive form of establishing our own kingdom, which we saw in Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans, they're aggressive about taking what was theirs, preserving what is theirs. We see here a passive form of, of doing so, a passive form of establishing our own kingdom. Now you have to imagine this scene, okay? Imagine it. Everyone in leadership, everyone in the kingdom, they're expected to bow. When a person hears this majestic music, they're emotionally stirred to bow down. There's this cultural expectation to bow down. There's this emotional pool to bow down. But nobody resists due to the injustice of this decree, due to the recklessness of this decree, due to the absurdity of this decree. Everybody just floats along, just goes along just lays down and passively agrees, no conflict, no complexity, no sticking our necks out to do what is right, just going along with it. That is, it's not an aggressive form of establishing your kingdom, it's a passive form of establishing your own kingdom. See, alternative to establishing my own kingdom by aggression, by initiation, by being cutthroat, whatever it costs, alternative to that, it's possible to establish my own kingdom by insulating, by hiding, by coasting. See, it's possible to just float along through life with the goal of not investing yourself in anything, not sticking your neck out for anything, just insulating yourself in a life that avoids conflict, that avoids complexity. See, some kingdoms, like Nebuchadnezzar, like the Chaldeans, are built for self-importance. Some kingdoms are, are established for the sake of self-importance, but others, their kingdom is established for the sake of self-protection. One brother uh, recently described this mindset, I think, really well in his baptism testimony. He said, before you meet Jesus, the mindset is that you are just born, you live, and you die as if all of this is for nothing. That is one way to establish your own kingdom, by just staying out of it, by not speaking up, Self-protection. And here's, here's the, the hazard. Here's the great error of self-protection. Self-protection results in enabling injustice, enabling breakdown, enabling distortion and downfall. And here is the reality if you are building your kingdom passively in order to insulate and self-protect. You are just as guilty of causing pain as those who build their kingdom through self-importance and aggression. 
You might dir- not directly cause it. You might not directly cause the breakdown, but you are indirectly causing it by remaining silent. You might not be participating in it, but you are contributing to it. So see, the furnace reveals that when we're outside of God's kingdom, we seek to establish our own. The furnace reveals who we really are. But that's not all the characters in the story. We have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego still. These three men show us what life is like when we are within God's kingdom, protected in God's kingdom, safe in God's kingdom. Within God's kingdom, instead of establishing our own kingdom, we are not our own. That's what they show us. That's what the furnace reveals. Now listen, I know when I say, you are not your own. You are not your own. That's not, you might, I don't like that. Some of you might say, I don't know if I like that. I mean, we prize autonomy, prize independence. We want to make the final call, don't we? You might think that sounds terrible, but slow down and remember this. When it's up to us to define ourselves, when it's up to us to establish ourselves, to create our own identity, it's catastrophic, isn't it? Great fallout occurs. We're hurt, others hurt. That, that's what happens when we seek to establish ourselves. But listen, when we are told who we are, when we are defined by another, when we are imparted value completely, unconditionally, when we are loved not for our performance but just by choice, when we are comforted and secure and not in our own strength, but the strength of another, when we are not our own, you know, what it ha- you know what happens? This is what the first reveals. It creates durability. Durability. Rather than being frenzied and freaking out when things are out of control, when you feel like you're threatened, when you're not your own, it's okay. You remain calm. And you know what? That kind of person who's durable like that, they're uncanny, aren't they? And there's just something remarkable about that person, about that exile, who knows no matter what, they're not their own. So start with me in verse 15. We'll see this. Nebuchadnezzar says to these three men after they've refused to bow, he says, now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, hark, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image I have set up, I have... I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So how do they respond? What do they say? Pressure's on. What do they say? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We have... No need to even give you a reply. We have nothing to even say to you. Think about that with me. There is these three men who are staring into the eyes of the most powerful man in the world at this time who is completely irrational, completely reckless, and hostile. They stare him in the eyes and they say, I have nothing to say to you. They stare certain death, terrible death in the eyes and say, it doesn't matter. Pretty unique. But before I go ahead and dig into that, let's see just how unique these men are because they keep on going verses 17 and 18. And Daniel wants to show us something pretty unique too. Verse 17 and 18, it says this. They continue, If this be so, 
Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, in these two verses I just read, Daniel has deposited key words that show us that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a direct reversal, a complete reversal of everything we've seen in every other character in the story so far. They are of the city of God, and everyone else is of the city of man, and that contrast is made clear in the words that Daniel uses. So think about this with me. It says, uh, before, the Chaldeans accused these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of not serving their gods or their image. And Nebuchadnezzar asks them if they will serve his gods and image, and they declare here that they serve their god. Just before this, Nebuchadnezzar claimed that no god could deliver them out of his hands. Now, they state that their God is able to deliver them from the furnace and out of his hands. Before, Nebuchadnezzar had set up that image, and the officials stood before it. Now these men declare that they will not worship what he has set up. They will not stand for it. So these men, these three, they are literally a direct contrast to the city of man to those who seek to establish their own kingdom. This is what someone looks like. This is what someone looks like who is within the kingdom of God, who's within the city of God. So now we ask, okay, here's what they look like. They're very remarkable. How do we get there? How do we get there? What's the secret to becoming that kind of exile who's remarkable under pressure, Who, who is like this, when the furnace is applied? The answer isn't what they said. What they say? They say, our God, he can deliver us out of your hands. He will deliver us out of your hands. On one hand, they're completely confident in the capability and in the power of God, but that's not all they say. They say, though, they continue on and say, but if not, if he does not decide to save us, if he does not decide to spare us, we're not going to bow our knee anyway. We're not going to stand before the image anyway that you have set up King Nebuchadnezzar. That's, that's the secret sauce right there. What is it? These men know that they are not their own. These men know that God is concerned for them. These men know who their God is, that God is capable that God is strong, that God is powerful, that God is faithful. Their hope is in God. Their comfort is in Him. They know He's capable, but on the other hand, they also trust Him. That If, if God doesn't decide to do this, then He must have a really good reason for it. They know that they are not their own for that, and, and, and that means for them, they're at rest. They're contented. They're durable. They're remarkable. See, what everyone else in this story is trying to seize, right? This security, promise, solution. Everyone else in the story is trying to seize for themselves. When you're within God's kingdom, you believe, you know, you're certain that what everyone else is trying so hard to grasp, you have already. 
You have it all already. You're not out trying to seize an identity. You're not out trying to build your own kingdom. You're not out trying to make yourself happy no matter the cost because in God's kingdom, you have it all already. And so you say to yourself then, come what may, I welcome it. If I continue on, so be it. If I don't continue on, so be it because I have it all already. And if you don't believe that, then of course you'll make exceptions. If you don't believe that, of course you'll compromise. If you don't believe that, of course you'll, you'll, you'll phase out of God's kingdom and begin living in the alternative kingdom. Of course that's the case. But if this is who your God is, if you believe that you are not your own, you welcome whatever may come. You trust that God has good reason for it. And that's pretty wonderful that we are not our own, that God is concerned for us, that being within God's kingdom means that we have hope in God, but also it gets better. It gets even more wonderful because the God who invites us into his kingdom, who invites us to be within his kingdom, is also with us. He invites himself into the furnace with us. Look at verses 23 and 24 and 25. It says, These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Remember, before the peoples, they fall down before this statue. These men now fall into the burning, fiery furnace. And what's going to happen? What is it going to reveal? Verses 24 and 25. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king, he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. What does the furnace reveal? <laughs> when the pressure is applied and we walk with God through it, what is made clear? It's this. What we believe about God is verified to be true. We believe he's powerful. We believe he cares. We, be we believe that we are not our own. When you walk with him through the fire, at the end of it, what will be revealed is that everything you thought abstractly, everything you thought cognitively is now in your heart true. You know without a doubt that it is true. It goes from cognitive to personal, from subjective to real. That is what the furnace is for to reveal that God is really who he says he is. So if you're here right now and you're struggling, you're in the furnace and you're thinking to yourself, where is God? He's with you. And you might think to yourself, it doesn't feel like it. Well, here's what Daniel says to you. Here's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says to you. Here's what God wants to say to you. Just keep going. Keep going because at a certain point, at the end of it, it will be very obvious to you and everybody else that I am who I say I am. And I am who you think I am. I am concerned for you. And you are not your own. I am with you. Now, I know you think to yourself, listen, Joey, if I had an angel who was walking with me through, the, through my situation... If I had, you know, some miracle like this occur in my life, then yeah, I'd be on board. I'd stop establishing my own kingdom. I would be all in on God's kingdom. I would walk with him through fire and flame. Whatever, it, whatever, whatever comes my way, I'll go for it. But this, this isn't my life. It doesn't feel like this is my life. Nothing remarkable, nothing astonishing like this is happening in my life. But let me tell you, you have something better. You have something better than an angel in the flame. See, many commentators 
they debate back and forth about, you know, this, this fourth person in the fire, this one who looks like the son, one of the sons of the gods. The commentators say, is this, is this the pre-incarnate Christ? Is this Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God's son, showing up in flesh before, you know, later, years later? Or is this just an angel? We don't, we're not certain. We're not certain. We don't know. But the whole point is this, that this event, this divine presence in the flame with these three men, it's a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing to the time when God's son, when Jesus actually was consumed in the hottest flame imaginable, which is God's justice in our place. How can, you think to yourself, how can I know that if I walk with God, it's, it's going to be okay? That, that he'll either deliver me or it won't go my way, but either way, it's going to be okay no matter what. How do I know? Can I have certainty that's okay? Because that, I'm not my own. What you do is you look to the cross where the Son of God was consumed in the hottest flames of God's wrath for you in your place. And if you believe that, if you believe that, then listen to this logic, okay? Doesn't it make sense then, if Jesus has been consumed in the hottest fiery furnace for your sake in your place, then any flame, any furnace that you encounter from here on out is not going to intimidate him? is not going to push him away? If he's already faced the worst thing imaginable, then what is the smaller flames that are going to come your way? And doesn't it only make sense, isn't it only natural that if Jesus has been consumed in the flames of God's wrath for you, then isn't he, isn't he invested? Isn't he going to be with you from here on out? Isn't it only natural to assume that any other furnace you face will not be faced alone? Friends, when you're within God's kingdom, you are not your own. And our proof, our memorial that this is the case, is that the Son went through the flames for us. And He will always then be with us. So living within God's kingdom, it produces durability. It has this flourishing effect on us where over time, as you walk with him in the kingdom, you begin to become a contrast. You begin to stand out and look remarkable. And that's exactly what happens at the end of the story. Look how, how everything's been flipped on its head. From the beginning of the story, where all the satraps, all the officials, all these people line up to bow before this image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Look what happens now that, that, God, has, that God has delivered these people. It says in verses 28 through 30, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language, all those who fell down and worshiped, that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. Their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted these three men. Look, as long as you are obsessed with establishing your own kingdom, trying to find and manufacture some sort of identity that's going to gain for you love and security and worth. As long as that is your fixation in life, 
you are never going to be remarkable. And you are never going to have a remarkable life. In fact, the opposite is going to take place. You're only going to have a life that is characterized and marked by regret. But when we are within God's kingdom, knowing that we are not our own, we begin to live a remarkable life. And the effect that takes place here in this story, this grand reversal, takes place in our story. So embrace the furnace, because it reveals who you really are an exile, loved by God, cared for by God, not your own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, that you are powerful to save us from the flame and powerful enough and faithful enough and loving enough to walk with us through the flame. Father, I pray that you would instill within our hearts courage, that you'd instill within our hearts belief so that we keep walking with you through whatever you're taking us through. Whatever testing, whatever refinement you're taking us through, Father, I pray that you would give us the faith to keep walking, knowing that you are trying. Your, your purpose here is to cause us to stand out as an exile in this age so others might be drawn to you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.